You are a people leader or an HR professional working hard to create an amazing employee experience for your team and your organization. But between the operational tasks of your job, managing emotions and politics, both up and down the corporate ladder, and trying to find some semblance of work-life integration in your own life, I suspect you are also overwhelmed and burnt out. If even the thought of navigating the complicated world of mental health at work probably seems like too much to handle, let this podcast be your not-so-secret weapon to help fix that. I am your host, Lindsay Recknell, and my mission is to help great leaders like you feel less awkward and more confident talking about mental health at work so you can stress less, take more action, and continue to make a valuable difference in your job as a leader, positively impacting the lives of your people. I'll be bringing you the experts, insights, and actions that will give you the skills you need to navigate mental health in the workplace and foster a workplace where everyone's mental health can thrive. Looking forward to introducing you to today's guest, another fabulous SHRM conference speaker, Javier Santos. Javier is a fellow Canadian, a diverse entrepreneur and international speaker on mental and emotional health at work. Javier redefines what is possible by using our emotional capital to become happier and more productive at work. He founded the House of Purpose to help companies improve the human and subjective side of work affected today by burnout, unresolved conflicts, and prejudices. Our conversation is all about science and emotional technology, and I'm excited for you to hear more. Before we get started, I want your time to be valuable here. So in order to get the most from this podcast, head to my website at mentalhealthforleaders.com and download the Guide to Influence and Impact at Work, which has the step-by-step action plan you'll need to embed a focus on mental health into the employee experience of your workplace. It's totally free, and it'll give you the start to your action plan, steps to follow to create engagement, to build a budget, and a method to measure the value, influence, and impact that you are going to be making as you lead this transformational change in your organization. We haven't been taught the mental health skills we need to truly lead our organizations into the future. So let this guide and this podcast be the advantage you need to elevate your career, your leadership skills, and the positive impact you'll bring to your organization. Head to mentalhealthforleaders.com and download the free guide to influence and impact at work now. The opportunity is yours and I cannot wait to see what you'll do. All right, now let's get to our guest. Hello, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. It, I just remember from our initial conversation how well the conversation flowed. I just feel like we're so well aligned in how we think and some of the things we're passionate about. So I just even can't even wait for this conversation either. Why don't we start by you sharing who you are, what you do, and who you serve? Perfect. So my name is Javier Santos. I am a Mexican-Canadian entrepreneur. Um, I do emotions at work, and that takes many, many different shapes, and we serve companies. We, we serve actually all types of organizations because we work with government and private and nonprofit, but that's basically in a nutshell who I am. Amazing. And a Canadian. I don't get a lot of Canadians on this show these days. That's amazing, <laughs> just like myself, which is excellent. Wonderful. And we got connected because you are going to be one of the fabulous speakers at the SHRM conference coming up in New Orleans in June. Um, Tell us a little bit about your talk there. What can we expect to hear from you? Well, this is obviously my favorite topic, and I am thrilled that we got this session approved because it's about mental health and inclusion. And people don't usually put those two together. 
But let me tell you, they have a lot to do because mental health is about how you feel at work. And being inclusive is how do your people feel at work? So now we're dealing with the subjective, we're dealing with emotions. So as you can see, there is a very strong connection between mental health and inclusion. And what I'm going to do during the talk is, well, basically draw that parallel and build some synergies. How can you build a program that it's also good, is good for mental health, but also is good for inclusion? Hmm. Oh, I love that. Um, who likes to talk about feelings and emotions at work? <laughs> you know, once you get started, and I think that is a little bit of what we do, is we create spaces where people feel safe to start talking about it. Now, we're not going to go and drill into your you know, first childhood memory and you know, try to uncover the trauma and we're not going to blame everything in your mom. But, <laughs> you know, there is a big distance between doing that and doing nothing. And that's a little bit of what we have as our you know, mission at the House of Purpose is to try, to try to start bringing this language and to create spaces. Because this is not about me telling you anything, although we're going to talk a lot about things that are important to say. But when you talk about mental health and inclusion at work, when you talk about emotions, is I want to hear what people are feeling. And how do you find the response to that? I like what you said about how there's a there's a great distance between, you know, emotional trauma and, you know, just how we're feeling in the moment. Um, so what how, how how do organizations and the humans in the organizations receive this work? Well, there is a little bit of, you know, help them understand how our brain works. And that creates a lot of, you know, new ideas to talk about. And you and I are going to talk about some of these things today. But one of it is just opening up their eyes to how important emotions are. And I think the biggest misconception that there is in the business world is that you can, you're paid to be rational, not to be emotional. And as we'll talk a little bit later, that's impossible. So people don't, they say they don't want to talk about it because sometimes they don't know how it feels to talk about emotions. It's not about just bursting into, into tears. It's about just, you know, saying how you feel. And this is this part of us that is always present, that we don't talk about formally, but that we enact without really knowing, right? Our feelings cannot go away. So if you don't pay attention to them, they'll show up anyway. It's so beautiful what you say. Um, it aligns so well to the mission and the work that we do with the language of mental health. Like it is all about getting to understand the words that you can use to express yourself. And so often we just don't know, we don't understand that language. And so we won't say anything at all because our confidence isn't high. We're afraid we're going to sound like a fool or we're not going to get it right. And people are going to misunderstand us. And it truly comes down to that language of mental health and recognizing those emotions and being able to express ourselves in a way that feels real and authentic and, and approachable and all of those things. That's so beautiful what you say. You also mentioned you. about science and evidence, which are two of my magic words. I would love to hear about the science of emotions, please. Yes. Well, this is one of the reasons I started in this business, because this is my, my second career, as you and I talked, and it's because now we have the science that can show us objectively, without any doubt, how does our brain and minds work. And this is what we call emotional technology. And in the last 20 years, uh, you know, the, the 
availability of technology that allows scientists to map the brain, you know, through CAT scans and through, you know, putting things in your bloodstream and measuring the electricity and measuring imaging and so many different technologies that we have right now, we've been able to uncover the inner workings of the brain. And there is this scientists that have been working not only in neuroscience, because now we have affective neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience, but these are things that are also coming out of biology and medicine and even psychoanalysis, believe it or not. It turns out that a lot of the things that psychologists have, have been talking about from their experience of watching their patients are now being corroborated and in some cases adjusted, but it's pretty much you know, along the same lines as what neuroscientists are discovering. So now there is this field, which is my favorite uh, subject, that is called neuropsychoanalysis, where people who understand the brain as an organ and the functioning of the brain meet with these people who have been working for almost 100 years in understanding how does the mind work and they're matching it, and they're discovering some amazing ideas I can't wait to tell you about. Please tell me. This is so exciting to me. And for <laughs> anybody who's listening, they know what a science geek I am. So please share what we know from this field of science. Well, I, I have a few points that I um, have prepared for you. And, and the number one thing, and this is the most important thing you want to know about your brain, is that the brain's job of course, is to keep you alive and, of course, is to help you reproduce and find all these things in the world. But the way it's, it's uh, physiologically built is to reduce surprises. So as you grow up, you start creating these ideas about the, the world, these mental maps that help you make predictions. So, so these are like stereotypes or algorithms that we have in our brain that tell us a lot about how reality works. Like if I throw a ball, it's going to fall again because, you know, there is gravity. Or if I bite an apple, I'm going to have this experience, this flavor, you know, it's going to look like this, it's going to feel like that. And all these ideas about the world that we create in our brain are going to use, our brain is going to use them to make predictions about the future. So in a way, our, our brain is always um, anticipating what's going to happen. And, the, you know, and, and with experience, the brain is also always testing these predictions and updating them. So this is what we call learning. So in a way, it's, it's important that we know that our brain does this because you tend to repeat the past. So your past experiences are going to inform your brain about the world that is going to find in the future. Which is something that aligns to what I knew about energy management and your brain designed to be as efficient as possible. It, it brings to mind the idea that um, if we have, have learned these habits, if we can predict what's going to happen next, is there something to be said for the efficiencies gained when we don't have to think about what's coming next because it's already habitual or it's already predicted absolutely there- and and this is the number one reason why you know this is an ev- evolutionary innovation and thanks to that we were able to save energy in the brain so that we could think about other things so the brain consumes around 20% in adults of of the energy that we, that we consume and thinking is metabolically 
very expensive. So when I have to bring something to consciousness, right, when I have to think about it because my brain cannot automatically do it, I spend very valuable resources. So the brain wants to optimize that. So the brain wants to know how to go to work without thinking about it, how to open a can of beans without think, uh, thinking about it, how to relate to my boss without having to think about it. So all these things are going to start creating this you know, efficiencies, but it does in a way that when things change a lot, it becomes cumbersome. Because if the person that you, or the apple that you're going to see every time tastes, dif tastes differently, then that's going to create a lot of errors of prediction, right? So it's easier to jump into conclusions, if that makes sense. It makes a ton of sense. And this is, it must be why we're exhausted at the end of a day where we had to make a ton of new decisions. Well, just think about how we evolve and how we live today. The average person not only lived a lot less years, but met a lot of less new people. Like you normally would be, you know, born in the country and you would see, you know, meet your family and the people that live in the town. And you were always, you know, very little exposure with strangers, right? And strangers became a bad thing. That's why when we meet people we don't know, we tend to be so prejudiced about them, you know, whether they're a female or how, or it's a tall person or it's a big person or, you know, colors of eyes or the accent, because our brain was designed by evolution not to have to encounter a lot of novelty, which is not what happens today. <laughs> that is for certain. And so back to what we where we started this conversation around inclusion, how can we use the brain to better... Uh, to, for inclusivity? Well, the, the first thing is understand that we're all different. We all come from different places. And so our experience is going to be based uh, on how we understand the world. So in terms of, of inclusion is to understand that what makes me feel safe is not the same thing that makes someone else feel safe. How I am resilient is not the same way or someone else is resilient. So if, for example, I want to take a nap because that's my way to restore my brain, like I do it when I'm studying, right? Like I know it's going to be 20 minutes, you know, that's that should be, you know, understood as my way of being resilient and not perceived as I'm just lazy. You know, just a simple example on how culture can sort of like sometimes um, offer very few possibilities at one way of being, when in reality, we're all different. So just understanding how subjective our experience is, it's a very good way to start to being to become inclusive. It, and it feels so practical to just even consider alternative ways of thinking around something like a nap. I mean, if if I can stereotype you fantastic Mexicans, siestas are a thing, you know, for for me this born and raised uh, Canadian Napping in the middle of the day is something I also enjoy, but experience a lot of pushback culturally from. As an adult, napping in the middle of the day is not something that you're supposed to do. But if we can come from a place of recognizing those differences and maybe being curious about them to learn more, that helps to build connection and also has a really great benefit in our brain. Yes, is exactly. what I'm hearing you say. So yeah, I, I have another one of this, you know, findings from emotional technology for you. And, and I love this one. And this is a big one. So it's okay if we don't get any further, but it's important because people understand emotions usually as a different capacity. So you, you hear people say IQ or EQ, 
right? So, oh, he has a very high IQ, but not a very, you know, high EQ or vice versa, as if they were like two engines, right, that you have, and you can have one or the other or both. It's actually not like that at all. And I, I love this quote, and this is from an actor who lived 100 years ago, so had nothing to do with psychology, you know, per se, but of course, being an actor, a lot with feelings. And he said, a thought was a feeling long before it was a thought. And this is actually neuroscientifically correct because thought emerges as a way for the brain to respond to an affect. So I get hungry, I need to find food. I start thinking, where can I get food? Um, I get angry, you know, I need to find a way to resolve this anger. So I'm going to think about it, right? And the same with all the things that we are impelled to do by emotional drives. So it's important to know that you have to learn about how you're feeling so that you can think before you act, right? So understanding how you're feeling is going to help you think better. And that's something that is not out there in the culture. People think that if you're very good rationally, you know, you can be a very strong rational CEO and have no emotion at all. It's like, that's not the way it works. It's impossible. You're it probably going to act out a lot of things. Yeah. Pardon it me, has I didn't to mean flip, to right? Yeah. No, no, no. It's uh, so that's that's you know some of the things um, that we. It's important to understand. For example, our emotional needs. So our need to, you know, uh, go out in the world in the world and look for things that mean something, and our, you know, our need to attach emotionally, and our need to our sexual needs. All these things are emotional drives, and they actually behave in the brain like like biological needs. So. Being uh, angry is as difficult to forget sometimes as being hungry. It's until you resolve the anger or until you resolve the hunger that that does goes goes away. So pushing your emotions down does nothing but just kind of make it worse for the future, right? And and that's how you get sick. So can we can we talk about the physical implications of crushing our emotions into our body? Yeah. That's a relatively new concept as well, or like relatively new in the common vernacular is the impact, the the detrimental impact of negative emotion over long periods of time on our body. Yeah, and I think this is something that happened. This, this division between body and mind started happening culturally, I think, with science because we sort of like created doctors that look after the body. And then the mind was difficult to understand. So that was not really a science until right now that psychology is now, you know, starting to become more of a natural science. And um, so so what happened is that we lost the connection between body-mind, but this has existed for many, many years. This is not new. We just forgot about it, right? Because it's ancient wisdom that, you know, uh, corpore sano, mente sana, which is from Latin, like healthy body, healthy mind. So there is a, we actually store a lot of our feelings in our body. And that's where we get this, you know, expressions like gut feeling and, you know, how you're heartbroken and all these things. And that's why we get stress at work. And then it reflects in our back. It reflects in our inability to sleep. It reflects on, you know, how we're feeling our bodies. There's a very strong connection. And I would invite the audience to start feeling your feelings in your body. How does it feel when you get happy? You know, how does it feel in your stomach? Start getting those connections back again. 
because it tells us a lot about what's happening. And it, it, mm, so before I started doing this work five years ago, I was very skeptical. I was very anti, you know, don't talk to people, my feelings, any of these things. But when people, smart people like you have started to talk to me about the science of it, the, the, the connection between mind and body and had me recognize the impact of the emotions like joy and sadness and what it actually felt like in my body. I mean, I'm a believer and it also feels like it's something that I can control a little bit. You know, like if I'm, as an example, if I'm feeling angry and I have done the work to recognize what, what anger feels like in my body and what a potential solution to working through that emotion looks like or feels like in my body, I can be, I can take control of that and be active and take some action towards resolution and, and dealing through that emotion, which feels quite powerful, actually. Um, and I wonder if if that's something that you see in your work when you are teaching this to maybe some skeptical people like me. <laughs> you know, there is a lot of things that happen, and and you just mentioned, you know, one of some of the main ones. But it starts with understanding or or knowing when you're angry. A lot of people don't feel angry because they confuse anger with something else. The same with sadness. A lot of people don't feel sadness; they just get mad. But it's actually, you know, it's they, they're they're not recognizing some some of their feelings, or there is something that tells them that it's not okay to feel sad, so they just feel anger. So there's a lot of, you know, not knowing really what your body is telling you that people are starting to discover. There is a lot that misunderstanding. For example, you're not uh, responsible for being angry. You're not responsible for being afraid. Is what you do with it. I can be very angry at you, and that there's nothing I can do. I just get angry, and you know that's not anyone's fault. That's just who I am. Now, what I do with it is a different thing. If I scream at you, if I leave the room, if I throw something, that's that's what I'm responsible for. So that that, that little bit, for example, tells a lot of people you have freedom to feel your feelings. Don't feel guilty for be, or don't feel like you're a bad person because you're angry. The anger is telling you about your state, about what's happening in the world that you need to pay attention to. Another another big thing with emotions that people sometimes don't understand is conflict because we can feel different things at the same time. So it's very common for pop, for people to have conflict. You know, I want that cake, but I know that's your cake and I want to keep your friendship. So if I eat it, I won't have... Let's say I'm my friend, I'll have a you know full stomach. <laughs> But you won't be my friend anymore. So I choose to keep your friendship, right? That's how you resolve a conflict. So like, okay, I'm going to let go of the idea of the cake because that's Lindsay's cake and I want her to stay my friend. So this is how, you know, sometimes people feel bad about having conflict or they don't kind of think about why am I feeling conflicted? And they just stay at, I don't want to feel the conflict. So we have to learn to feel our feelings, not only emotionally, but also in our bodies, as we were talking about. Yeah, don't take my cake. Just kidding. Um, but it, all, it, it all comes back to that language and recognizing the recognizing and being able to name those feelings. So how? I mean, short of of fine folks listening to smart people like you in a podcast like this, how do we learn 
the accurate name for some of the things that we're feeling? Well, you know, every everyone has a different experience, and and you know, some people because of you know they were the way they were taught, they might be confusing some feelings. I think it's important to. This is a little bit like getting into wine. You're not going to pick up a glass of wine and be an expert the first time. You have to kind of read a little bit and then maybe get together with some friends and and pay attention, you know, what is the flavor of the wine, you know, and some people say, "Oh, I you know, taste some banana and some apple," right? So, after a lot of glasses of tasting, you know, you know, just bringing a, you know, happy example, you'll start noticing these things. So, it's the same with feelings. You start asking yourself, "How do I feel right now?" Right. And then, you know, when you think about it again, how do I feel right now? And then maybe the first couple of times it's like, I feel the same. I don't feel nothing. This guy in the podcast is crazy. But then before you know it, you're going to start saying like, oh, I hadn't noticed this feeling. Why do I feel like this? And then once you start asking yourself, that's when the growth happens. Right. Because you're like, I think I'm still angry at something that happened yesterday. What's up with that? Right. And then you can start learning about yourself. And it's okay if you're wrong, right? It's okay if you're wrong because this is like, you know, riding a bicycle and expecting never to fall. I don't know anyone who has had to ride a bicycle and never fail. You have to assume the fact that you're going to get hurt a little bit, you know, otherwise it's going to be a very anxiously provoked, uh, you know, anxiously filled process. So it's okay to be wrong and and I think we all have to understand that we all have our own way of feeling our feelings, but the way we are right now doesn't have to be the way we are for the rest of our lives because our, our brains change, our brains are plastic. And that's you know another one of these properties and these great things that we've learned from emotional technology is that how and how much we can change. Tell me about that. So I have... So this... Yes, please. <laughs> so, so this uh, this is called neuroplasticity, right? In the, and it's the ability for the brain to change on its own. So it's actually, you know, it's it's something that when you were born, we are full with plasticity. Every our brain is a work in progress. So the first few months and then the first few years of your life, you're basically, you know, a matter that is creating. So everything is new. So very, very plastic, and it decreases as we age, but it never ends. And that is a very important thing to say because you can always change your brain. And I say, I hate when people say like, oh no, he cannot change because that's the way he is. Well, there is always something you can change, right? Now, another interesting thing is that we are always more plastic in some areas than in others. So for example, if you are born with um, parents that speak two different languages and you you know, race speaking two or three different languages, it's going to be easier for you to pick up more because that area of your brain, brain is still plastic because that's something that you use a lot. If you play a lot of different sports and you learn how to ski and snowboard and play golf, your brain will keep that area more plastic. So it'll be easier for you to learn new things. So it's important that we know, you know, where is my brain more plastic? And where would I like it also to to become to become more plastic, right? So it really depends on your experience. And as I was telling you, we the brain makes these predictions and it's always adjusting them. So that's the essence of plasticity, right? It's, it's, it's adjusting the model of the reality. How do I pronounce this word? So it's important that we know that this is an ability that we have and that we make the most of it. 
right? That we become the better version of ourselves. Or if you don't believe in self-improvement, at least become more adaptable because reality around us is changing. So if you don't want to change, that's okay, but you still have to adapt. And do we ever lose that plasticity? I mean, I feel like it must decline, but can you teach an old dog new tricks? Yes, definitely. Because we have different areas of the brain that are plastic and and you can always regain some plasticity, right? It's it's hard. It's um, it's it's a little bit more like jello, not like concrete. Like you can always soft make it a little bit softer, you know, if that analogy helps. But definitely, you know, the the idea of if you don't use it, you lose it, still there. So if you're, you know, if you go a lot of years without using certain abilities, you lose them. Uh, so it's harder for it them to come back. So I would say, don't worry about how non-plastic it is. Just do something about it. Yeah, it's still possible. It just might be harder than it would have been had you kept it up before. Oh, yeah. But, you know, hopefully your audience will be young enough to do something with this information. Well, and I like what you said about... you know, if if you if, if a person doesn't have a growth mindset and they're not interested in changing themselves, cool. I mean, you get to choose, but that you sh- that you do still need to adapt as the world changes around you. I think that's really important to call out as well. Well, if you're going to change jobs, you have to adjust to the new relationships. If you're going to get married, well, you know, it's a big learning curve there. If you're having a child, if you're getting older, because now you can't do the same things you used to do. So you have to change your interest. You cannot be, you know, having the same high degree of interest for, you know, climbing mountains when you're 60. Maybe you just read about them. So, so you know, it, it can be as passionate, right? It's like, it's not about having a less quality of life or, or having less passions. It's about finding new passions, finding new ways of relating as you go through life and, and just encounter it, right? And, and I think there's way. also something to say about how much our world is changing, right? With just climate change, you know, the level of the sea is going to rise and that had never happened before. So there's just one little thing that is new. It's April 22nd and uh, we have four inches of snow. So climate change is definitely a thing. <laughs> it's a bit ridiculous, <laughs> I'll tell you. Um, I can't even believe that we're coming to the end of our time together. Do you have some final parting wisdom that you want to make sure that all of the listeners take away from this episode today? Yes, I would say that if there's one thing that you want to take away from this is remember that you have to learn to feel so that you can think before you act. Yes. Feel so you can think before you act and get to understand the language of those feelings so that you can express yourself and make those connections with other people. Exactly. Wonderful. So beautiful. So beautiful. Javier, how can people get a hold of you when they want to learn more? Well, my company is called The House of Purpose. So if you go to thehouseofpurpose.com, you'll see who we are. And, you know, you'll see my picture and we have a contact info, so you can find us there. Um, yeah, so hopefully we'll find some uh, people that is interested. But if you don't want to call us, that's okay. Just start feeling your feelings. 
<laughs> Absolutely fair. We will put the link to your company on the website. We will um, promote this like crazy because everybody needs to know this information. Everybody needs to know that feelings are okay and that it's actually the place that we start with our interactions and behavior. This has been so, so wonderful. I can't wait to see you at the conference and hear your talk. Share in more of your wisdom. It has been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Lindsay. Take care. Thanks for joining me for another awesome episode of the Mental Health for Leaders podcast. To make sure you don't miss any future episodes, please go to mentalhealthforleaders.com and subscribe to have these episodes delivered right to your inbox each week. You'll also find all the show notes, links, and resources that my guests mention on the show and the link to the Guide to Influence and Impact at Work freebie I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. You're listening to this podcast because you know our people need us more than ever. But being a people leader and an HR professional is especially hard right now. If the thought of figuring out how to best support your people and yourself feels overwhelming and impossibly hard, let's talk. I don't promise I can make it easy, but I can make it simple. So let's do that together. Go to mentalhealthforleaders.com and download the guide to influence and impact at work now. Until next time, take good care. And as always, call me if you need me.